Let's pray uh, one more time and uh, let's dive into this portion of Scripture together. Father, uh, we come before you now and everything we sang springs out of your word. Everything that we just sang about Jesus and our life being hidden in him and our name being graven upon his hands. And Lord, everything that we just sung about is only possible because of a passage like this where we sing about our great high priest, we sing about the great things that he has done and opening up to us a new and living way of swinging wide open to us the doors of paradise and giving us access, giving us a way into the Father's house. So we're so grateful, O God. And so we pray tonight, Lord, would you exalt before us and exalt in our heart and in our mind our great high priest so that we may just get a glimpse of how great he really is, Lord. Bless your word, Lord. Help me. Give me a mouth to speak and bless your people. Give us ears to hear now what your word is saying to the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this whole passage is about Jesus' priesthood and When we think about Jesus as our priest, what that means automatically is that we stand to benefit many, many things from him. He becomes, in other words, our benefactor of so many privileges and blessings and so many things uh, in terms of our relationship with God. But I want to focus on a few things here today. I want to look at the reality of his priesthood. I want to look at the incentive that he gives us. I want to look at the invitation of the priesthood and a description of his priesthood as well. But first, let's just think about the reality of our great high priest itself. Now, you remember that the book of Hebrews is what many scholars believe to be an early sermon of the church. So for us, it's been weeks since we were in chapter 3, verse 1. But if you were sitting in a church and someone was reading this letter, this homily, It wasn't too long ago that you heard the reader say, and go back to chapter 3, verse 1 with me, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, so that the idea of the high priesthood of Christ is fresh in the ears of the hearers of this homily. And then, What that means is that much of what we saw in chapter 3 and chapter 4 is really a parenthetical uh, exposition and uh, on Psalm 95, that's what we saw. And so now verses 14 through 16 are largely resumptive. We're going back and resuming the idea of the priesthood. Remember, the idea of Jesus' priesthood was first introduced Uh, That was the, chapter 3, verse 1 was the last time that it was mentioned, but uh, chapter 2, verse 17, is the first time that his priesthood has been mentioned explicitly. He is is our merciful and faithful high priest. And then chapter 3, consider the high priest. And then chapter 3 and chapter 4 serve to remind us why do we need our high priest. The reason we need our high priest is because we stand to either gain or to or to forfeit the rest that he provides. And so now we are resuming. We're coming back to a description of this, uh, the reality, rather, of this high priest. And there are two things that I want to 
look at here because it begins by setting forth Jesus as our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. A remarkable, a remarkable description of Jesus' accomplishments. Uh, you find this throughout the book of Hebrews that Jesus penetrates certain things. He passes through the heavens. He penetrates through the veil, beyond the veil. He enters into the holy place. And He does that for us as our forerunner, as our captain, as our trailblazer leading the way so that we end up following Him right into the very place that He goes. So first, I want to look at the fact that Jesus has passed through the heavens. Remarkable, but what is this speaking about exactly? Well, it's obviously talking about the time that Jesus was, or the place that Jesus has been exalted to. Go back to chapter 1, because he's already introduced this fact. You go back to chapter 1, verse 3, you remember what it says there. It says that he is the radiance of the glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So in other words, what we're looking at here in Jesus passing through the heavens is exaltation language. The fact that Jesus has entered into the state of exaltation. That's what he does. It represents the fact that Jesus has inaugurated a new boundless place of worship for us. He has opened up a new way, a, a, a new holy place, a new temple worship of sorts, a new altar of sacrifice, a priesthood over God's house. It was at the crucifixion, you remember, that the Gospels record, Matthew chapter 27, Mark chapter 15, Luke chapter 23, where it records that there on the cross, after Jesus had breathed his last, the veil was rent from top to bottom, symbolizing, of course, the fact that we have this access now, newly found access into the very place where no one else could go except for the high priest, and that once a year. But now that was a symbol of the fact that now there is, a, there is an opening for us. He has, he has torn away any barrier into the very presence of God, but it also symbolizes the fact that it was through his torn flesh that he did this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 20 says that it was through the torn flesh of Jesus that he opened up this living way. So in other words, it is through the cross work of Christ. That is how he had become for us a trailblazer. That's how he became for us a forerunner, leading us into the Father's house. What does that remind you of? But when Jesus said, in my Father's house, there are many rooms, there are many dwelling places, there are many palatial dwellings. If it were not so, I would not have told you so. And yet he goes to prepare a place for us. He goes ahead of us only to bring us to himself in the end. How wonderful and how beautiful is that? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 says this, This is the hope that we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope that is both sure and steadfast, and one that enters in within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. Isn't that remarkable? Because he lives, 
we will live. And already in a positional fashion, the Bible says we are already, in a sense, seated with Him at the right hand of the Father. We are already seated with Christ, the enthroned Christ. Isn't that remarkable? This is why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 3 that we are citizens, presently citizens of two kingdoms. Oh, sure, we have a citizenship here. Sure, we're Americans. Sure, we live in this world. But our citizenship is on a much higher level, more properly speaking, a residence of heaven. We are already there. Our citizenship has been granted. We are already participants of that new eternal city, that new country, that faraway country, that heavenly land, the city of God. And we are already residents of that there. Now, the second thing that makes him such a great high priest is the designation not only that he passed through the heavens, but notice he is a high priest who has passed through the heavens, and then the designation comes, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God. Why is that important? Because when we're talking about the ministry of Jesus as high priest, we are talking about his faithfulness. Go back to chapter 3 with me for a second. This is why he can uh, remind us of the fact that Jesus is worthy of greater glory than all the servants that came before him. Remember what it says there in chapter 3, verse 5? Now Moses was faithful in all of his house as a servant for a testimony of the things which were to be spoken later. What a remarkable phrase, by the way. Zero in your eyes on that phrase. For a testimony of the things that were to be spoken later about who, about what, about what we're reading here and now in the book of Hebrews about Jesus. Verse 6, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. This is what the book of Hebrews is all about. It's all about setting in front of us these magnificent, unthinkable, un unimaginable, glorious realities, redemptive realities, new covenant realities, setting these things up in front of us and showing this is how great, this is how wonderful, this is how open the access. This is the throne of God. This is the throne of grace. And then the admonition, hold fast, hold fast firm the hope until the end. This is the way the whole book of Hebrews works, setting out glorious things in front of us and then admonishing us to hold on to the very end. As Hebrews says, whatever you do, don't cast aside your, your uh, confidence because it has great reward. Oh, you can't even begin to fathom how rewarded you will be on that day. Oh, we're going to be dancing on the streets of gold. We're going to be filled with overwhelming joy. We cannot even conceive of the joy and the bliss and the wonder and the glory and the beauty. I tell you what, if God didn't sustain us through all of eternity, we would probably, even in our glorified bodies, perish because we couldn't handle the infinity of what God is revealing to us so that he has to continually, eternally sustain us in his presence forever and ever. Or else we'd never stop weeping. We'd never stop weeping over the things that we're going to see. We're going to be so vindicated. It's just 
I don't want to even almost go there because then I won't come back to wherever I'm supposed to be in these notes. But that's what we're supposed to do, isn't it? We are supposed to get caught up. We are supposed to become enthralled. We are supposed to stand in amazement and in wonder. We are to have our our breath taken away at the glorious things that have been spoken. And so what is the result? That is, the Son of God, having passed through the heavens, who happens to be our great high priest. What does it mean? It means that we receive grace and mercy from an enthroned priest in heaven who happens to be the Son of God. That's what it means. Not just the reality, though. We are given, again, this incentive, right? Jesus, the Son of God. And in light of us comes one of the many let us statements of Hebrews. Let us hold fast our confession. So what do we do with this confession? What does it mean? What does it contain? What is it referring to? It's referring to ultimately persevering in the gospel. Turn with me to chapter 2, verse 1. If, as I've argued before, chapter 2, verse 1, is sort of that controlling, that opening admonition that I think sort of sets the plumb line for the entire book of Hebrews, then what the book of Hebrews is calling us to do is to be gospel-centered and never to move away from the gospel. For this reason, we must. You hear that? That's a day phrase. It's a Greek word, day It's what uh, exegetes would call a divine necessity. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. That's the, you can summarize the whole book of Hebrews right there. Don't drift away from what you have heard. Take heed to the gospel because, and that's what chapter four, chapter three and chapter four really served to show us, was that there was a previous generation who had heard also, right? Look at uh, chapter, uh, chapter four, beginning in verse two. For indeed, we have had good news preached that's important because, as I pointed out, the word gospel, euangelion, is not found in the book of Hebrews. There's no word gospel. The word gospel is not mentioned in the book of Hebrews, but this is the essence of it here. And we have heard good news preached to us just as they also, but the word that they heard, it didn't profit them. In other words, it did them no good. Why? Because the word was no good? No, because it was not united by faith. That's why. And so... Verse 6, same thing. Chapter 4, verse 6. Since it remains for some to enter in, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. So what is he telling us here in chapter 2, verse 1? He's saying, look, we have heard good things. The Son of God came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and we would do well to take heed to what he says. And so... The admonition is to hold fast. It means to have a resolved conviction about something. That's what it means, to hold fast. It means to have a commitment, a resolution. It means that you have made an internal, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual commitment that you will not shift away from a certain object or subject. In this case, the gospel. 
So this is where we always have to be, examining ourselves to say, are we there emotionally, spiritually, intellectually? Where is our faith commitment to Christ? This is why we cannot tolerate liberalism in any fashion whatsoever, because liberalism opens up the door. Liberalism opens up the, 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 the portal to apostasy, ultimately. People begin with flirting around with the doctrine of justification, and then they end up affirming the gospel according to works or something of that fashion. This was the problem with the new perspective on Paul. This is the problem with Eastern Orthodoxy. This is the problem with Roman Catholicism. This is the problem with pretty much every other system of religion that man can conceive of. It is a man-made system of works whereby man justifies himself what theologians call an autosocratic system, an autosocratic religion, meaning you save yourself on the basis of what you do. That is the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is that God saves you, not on the basis of anything you have done, but on the basis of what the high priest has done for you. See, it's all about representation. You will either represent yourself, and in doing so, in actuality, you have a, higher, a, a, a greater, more significant representative than that. His name is Adam. You will either be represented by Adam. Adam will be, in a sense, your priest to represent you. But in Adam, all die, Paul says. But in Christ, all will be made alive. So you better have Jesus as your high priest. He is the object of our confession. He is the essence of our religion right? Go back to chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. In other words, Jesus is the object of our faith. He is the one that we put our faith in. Apostle, meaning he goes before us. He was sent to deliver good news to us. Priest, he is the one that will bring us to God. He is our mediator. And in that way, we are to have him as the object of our faith. And now he moves on to give us a description of our high priest. A description of Jesus who can sympathize with our creaturely weaknesses. And maybe we should begin by asking, why the description of his sympathy. Why go from passed through the heavens to he can sympathize with our weaknesses? Or we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He can sympathize with our weaknesses, but why the issue now? Why introduce this here? Well, remember, if you go back to 4.12, chapter 4, verse 12, all the way to, chapter, uh, to verse 13, you remember last week's study, what we what we determine from this is that according to uh, what uh, the author is saying here is that everything is laid open and bare before God. He knows everything about us. He knows the intents of our heart. He knows the motive of our heart. He sees everything. The Word of God is living and active. In other words, we are discerned by God. And who of us, do, who of us would not tremble in the presence of an all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful God that is able to read our mail? I'll tell you what, you could be overcome. You could be overcome by your sense of weakness before the holy God, as it says, the one with whom we have to do. And you can be overcome 
thinking, I'm going to have to deal with this holy, omniscient, all-seeing, all-just God. And so, this is a good balancing point at this, at this point. He balances it out with the idea that we have such a high priest who is not here to condemn us. He is here to have compassion on us. He is here to sympathize with our weaknesses. And the reason why this is important, my dear friends, is because it expresses Jesus' solidarity with his people. Go back to chapter 2, because he already expressed this. This is crucial for Jesus' atoning work to be qualified, in a sense, to be our priest. He has to identify with us. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, there's the atonement, for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able now, and this is the essence of what our passage is talking about, he is able now to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Oh, praise God. You mean we don't have a high priest that's going to that's gonna look down to us from his throne? Remember, this is a priest who is now exalted, sitting on his throne, who is now ruling and reigning from a position of absolute holiness, absolute authority, absolute power, absolute sovereignty. And yet, when we look up at his throne, what do we see? A judge who is frowning on us? Do we feel like we're under the, the frowning brow of God? Quite the opposite, my dear friends. You are looking up at the throne of God and coming back to you is the face of empathy, compassion, grace. And that's what makes the priesthood of Jesus so incredibly wonderful. You remember that we're in the first century, guys, the book of Hebrews. These are first century believers. These are folks that heard the gospel from the apostles whom saw the risen Christ ascend into heaven. And having ascended into heaven, one would be caused to contemplate, did he forget us? Has he forgotten? Now that he has ascended to his Davidic throne, now that he is the Son of God sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, and now that all of his enemies are going to be put under his feet, does he forget that we are dust? No, he does not. He still sympathizes with Isn't that grace? You want to talk about grace upon grace upon grace upon grace? You have Jesus, a holy, innocent, sinless priest presiding over the people of God, seeing all of our faults, all of our failures, able to take his word and to do surgery in our hearts to discern our thoughts and our motives, and yet he has compassion. That's remarkable grace. That's a grace untold. What does James say? James chapter 4, he gives greater grace. I like that phrase, greater grace. Sounds like a book title or something. That's what it is. He's able to sympathize, as it says there, chapter 2, verse 18. He comes to the aid of those who are tempted. Why? Because he endured temptation. Think about that for a second. Think about what Jesus went through. You know what's remarkable about that? He doesn't forget it. He has not forgotten 
what the time of his humiliation was like. He has not forgotten what it meant to be oppressed. He has not forgotten what it meant to be resisted by a world of darkness. Spiritually speaking, Jesus knows that he knows what it's like to undergo spiritual warfare. You remember Luke chapter 4? He is assaulted by the devil himself. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know about your battles with spiritual warfare, but I guarantee you that none of us in this room can stand up and say, we have been assaulted by the devil himself. Jesus can. Jesus overcame. He was always successful. He always triumphed. He always passed the test. He never gave in to temptation. He always saw temptation all the way through, yet without sin. He knew what it felt like to be surrounded by demonic influence. I think we forget that. It says in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, that they brought all sorts of demon-possessed people around him. Can you imagine that? Now, I think I've been in the presence of a couple demon-possessed people, but I have never been in a position where people were bringing demon-possessed people to me. He was surrounded by them. He was casting out demons by the power, by the Spirit of God. And it was an indicator that the kingdom of God had come. Physically, he understands what it means to go through mental duress. He understood the agony and the torment of mental stress. He understood what it meant to be under such great anxiety and fear that in the Garden of Eden, or excuse me, the Garden of Gethsemane, not Eden, Garden of Gethsemane, different garden, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, all the while never slipping into sin. It's remarkable. Now, you and I can worry and be anxious in a sinful fashion. Jesus can worry. Jesus can be filled with anxiety and fear and not sin. I think that's remarkable. Physically, he knew what it, means, what it meant to be afflicted and how that physical affliction is a temptation to turn away from doing God's will. Jesus can sympathize with us, I think, deeper than we will ever even understand that he can sympathize with us. Let me just encourage you that when God brings you to those points in your life where you just feel like you're going to break, right? Where you just, you can't take another truck. You can't get another phone call. You can't get another bill. That's it. You're, you're taxed out. You're maxed out. Your, your trial level is at its highest peak. When we are there, I would say, maybe now we are barely beginning to understand what Jesus endured and what he went through yet without sin. Remarkable. And it was because he was the sinless son of God. Now turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, because he ties it all in together for us. This is his testing, this is his endurance, and it is his example. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For what credit is it if, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, what credit is it there if you sin and are harshly treated? You endure it with patience. But if you do, not, if you, if, but if you do what is right and you, suffer, if, and you suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Wow, that's amazing. Patiently enduring your trials finds favor with God. Amazing. He says, for you have been called for this purpose. What purpose? Contrary to 
scores of evangelical churches, we are called not to our best life now. We are called, according to the context of Peter's message here, we are called to a life of suffering and enduring. And we are called to this. We are called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats. Doesn't this give you the idea that He could have, right? Oh, He could have. He could have sent down a legion of angels and just wiped the human race off the earth. He's done it before with water. Why can't he do it again with fire or angels? Because redemption was at stake. Because the glory of God was at stake. And therefore, he says he did not revile in return while he suffered. He uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. This is why he's able to empathize with us. But he doesn't just give us the reality of the priest, the high priesthood of Christ. He doesn't just give us the incentive to hold fast to our confession. He doesn't just give us a description of him, but he also lays before us a great invitation, the invitation of our great high priest. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That really is its own sermon. And I was very tempted last night, I won't tell you what hour, to make another sermon out of that because that's, how am I supposed to preach that in 10 minutes? I really don't know. The preacher's job is impossible. But here we go. We'll give it a shot. We'll give it a shot. As if Jesus' high priestlyhood could not get any better, Jesus not only sympathizes with us, but he also invites us to draw near with confidence. Now, I want to talk about three things here because I think, I perceive, I don't know about you, but in this verse, I see that he gives us the how, the where, and the why of drawing near. So first, we draw near how with confidence. This is huge for us. I could say this word here, confidence, parousia, is the gospel. This is the gospel right here in the word confidence because it is everything that we lack in a relationship with God outside of Christ. If we don't have Christ, no way can we be confident to come to God. The whole gospel is right here, folks. This is the result the result is, is that now we're accepted. The result is, is that now we've been justified. The result is, is that now we have been reconciled to God. We went from a place of hostility, a place of enmity, to a place of friendship, where he, he calls us friends. We have become, as Abraham, friends of God through the gospel. And friends can be confident with friends. We can approach the throne of grace knowing that we are not coming to a bar of judgment to be judged and condemned, but that Jesus stood condemned in our place, that Jesus was our substitute, that Jesus absorbed our condemnation and the wrath of God. This is just tremendous, is it not? 
This idea of confidence is united to the result of faith. It's united to faith. Let me give you just one verse, okay? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, talking about the eternal plan of redemption. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom, watch this, in whom we have parousia, boldness, and confident access through faith in him. That's what it results in. Confident access. It is remarkable what this is saying. In the new covenant, the way to the presence of God Because when we talk about the throne of God, what are we talking about? We are talking about the presence of God. The throne is the place where God's glory emanates from Him, where all the angels of heaven gather around this holy throne where the the elders and the apostles and all the people of God will be worshiping for eons and eons of time and eons and eons of ages, endless ages. And yet... We are told that now, this is what it's talking about, though, our positional access. Not our practical access, because we cannot right now go through the the doors of this church to the throne of God itself, right? That's a spatial difference. We're talking about a spiritual, positional access. Oh, we will come spatially to the throne of God. And even there, we will, we will sing with the angels. Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, gives the heavenly description of our worship around the throne of God, where God is enthroned, where the Lamb is enthroned. And it says He will give us the right to sit on the throne with Him. Isn't that remarkable? It means that we are co-heirs with Christ. What He inherits, we inherit. We are fellow heirs with Christ. It's just remarkable, impossible, unthinkable. The letter, you remember, is written to those who are are in danger of not drawing near, but drawing back, drawing away, pulling away from the throne of grace. And so he doesn't just give us the how with confidence. But he also gives us the where, to the throne of grace. And in that sense, he is calling us into God's presence. Into God's presence. To draw near to the throne of grace is a spiritual journey into faithfulness. That's what it is. It's a spiritual trajectory into faithfulness. If you do not draw near to the throne of grace, then you can only draw back. You can only shrink away. And then, as Hebrews says, God will have no pleasure in those that shrink back. But it also says we are not of those that shrink away. We are not those that draw back to perdition. But instead, we are those that find grace. So why do we go there? And then here's my other follow-up question. Because I think in the why, I think you know why. Because we are there for grace and mercy. Look at what it says. Here's the purpose clause, right? Keep your eye in the Bible for those purpose clause. So that, in order that, so that we may receive mercy and find grace 
to help in time of need. He doesn't just sympathize with our needs. He doesn't just empathize with our weaknesses. He aids us. He gives us help when we are down, when we are low, when we are overwhelmed by our trials and our temptations. He gives us help. He gives us mercy in time of need. Now, notice the fact that he speaks about temptation. Uh, The reason I want to point this out is because I think too often we fly immediately to the sin element. Well, he gives us grace and mercy when we sin. Well, that's not what it says. The, the focus is temptation. And what I, the reason I bring that up is because if we go to God regularly for his grace and his mercy, we can preempt a sinful strike. We can preempt our temptation from succeeding from achieving its goal, sin. We can preempt that. We can circumvent it. We can short-circuit sin if we go to God to help us even in our temptation before we sin so that He doesn't lead us in temptation. That should be the cry of every one of our hearts. We go to His throne. How? How do we do it? I just said you can't walk through the doors of this church, out into the throne of grace. So then how do you do it? How do you come? Well, I'll make a case for prayer being the main way that we approach the throne of grace. And the reason I say that is because the context is saying the things that we receive, the help that we find, the needs that we have. Notice also it's at various times, in time of need. Actually, the Greek word uh, ukairos literally means a good time. (laughs) It's interesting because it's in a negative context, which is temptation, right? So a good time means at an opportune time, or better yet, at the appropriate time. Right, I don't want to say right in the nick of time, but right in the time that we need him the most, God is willing to give us his grace and give us his mercy. He comes through for the people of God. God never disappoints us. He is always available to us. And if we fail in our temptations, it is because of our sin and our folly because the grace of God was there, always there, always available for us. We could have taken up His grace. We could have taken up His mercy if we did not but stiffen our neck and harden our heart and therefore suffer for our own foolishness. Now, I can think of so many reasons why we need to come to the throne of grace. Oh, we can sit up here with a big old prayer list. I need grace and help. I need grace and mercy to help in my time of need. And let me give you my, my needs And I can rattle off all of our material needs, all of our felt needs, all of our psychological needs, our emotional needs, our spiritual needs. But I can say this, the greatest need that we have is the need of redemption. The greatest need that we have is salvific needs. And that is the greatest aid that He gives us. He gives us that by His grace and His mercy. He gives us this boldness to come. Are you bold? In prayer. Are you bold? Or are, I understand that we have some very shy people among us. And then for you to utter a word in a group setting is painfully difficult. <laughs> I understand that. Notwithstanding that, though, do you have a freedom? 
between you and God? Is there a boldness? Is there a confidence? Or are you filled mainly with doubt, with trepidation? Are you filled mainly with hesitation? Are you filled mainly with complexity, not confidence? Then I would say you need to come either to faith in Christ because maybe you're not saved and that's why you're not confident before God, or you need to come into a better understanding of grace, that you don't need to pray eloquent prayers, that you don't need to pray like the person next to you, that you don't have to have the best theology to approach God. You know what? I like what John MacArthur says. You don't need great faith. You just need faith. We are not saved on the basis, we are not accepted on the basis of how great our faith is. We are accepted on the basis that we have faith, that we believe that we have trusted in the Savior. This is what it means to find mercy, to receive mercy, and to find grace to help us in our times of need. And listen, the time of need is going to come. We are going to have those moments where we are going to need God. And we come to God not because of anything we have done, right? It's not based on our merit. We don't have merit in the eyes of God. You know what we have? Demerit. <laughs> We're going the opposite way. So this is not a call to pull yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps and say, okay, now I'm going to really take heaven by storm, right? but acknowledge by the grace of God who you are and the access that has been opened to you and on the basis of the work of our high priest, then you can come on that basis because of his blood. Go to the grace of God. Feast on the grace of God. It's all based on his blood. He did all the work. He has done it. Literally, he has done it all. Let's finish by going to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, because I want your kids, husbands, I want your wife, wives, I want your husband, I want you guys that if you say, what in the world was Pastor Emilio yelling about today? What was he preaching about? What was it all about? I got lost somewhere in the sermon. Okay, fair enough. But if that question is put to you, I want you to be able to answer with, oh, I know what it was about. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 23. Because this is a parallel passage that sums it all up. It amplifies the theology of verse 16 that we've been looking at. And look, let's close by looking at this together. He says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Oh, remember that the holy place was restricted. People couldn't come to the holy place. The priests couldn't come to the holy place. Only the high priest could come in only once a year. But look at this wonderful language. Look at how it bursts open the imagery of the Old Testament. He says, now we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated, so that might be a big word that we need to look into, right? He inaugurated for us, meaning he began this for us. He, the inception of this new covenant began right here through the veil, that is, his flesh. And because he was torn, 
what kept us away from God has also been torn so that we now have access. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, remember chapter 3, you are his house if you hold fast. Remember? 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in, watch this, full assurance of faith. That's just so remarkable. You don't need to live in doubt. You don't need to live wondering, am I accepted? Do I have access? Am I saved? Am I not saved? The Christian life is a life where you can have full assurance of faith. And I think that is a glorious gift when God gives it to you. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. See, you no longer have to worry because you have a sympathetic high priest who knows your weaknesses and can fully understand and fully identify with you. And therefore, your conscience can be cleansed. He says, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies have been washed with pure water. That is all symbolic of cleansing, salvific cleansing. The priests had to wash. They had to cleanse. They had to get themselves right for worship. God has done that to us by His Spirit. Let us, here it is, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. What's the practicality of this? Again, this is why I love the book of Hebrews. It's very technical, isn't it? It's this, it's that, it's exegesis, it's this, right? It's imagery, it's Old Testament, New Testament, continuity, discontinuity. It's all this stuff. But it's also very practical. It is the person next to you. Verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. Isn't that glorious? The practical means of grace that comes through the ministry of the church will aid us in our pursuit of full assurance of faith. Let's pray. Father, help us to rightly esteem the body. Help us to have a right view of one another. That we are to be an encouragement to one another of full assurance of faith. That we are to be able to stimulate each other in such a way that practically speaking, we feel, we sense, we come to know something of what it means to have confidence before the throne of grace. To have confidence so that we have no doubt, no wavering. God, I pray for any in our church struggling with maybe their assurance. I know at times maybe we all go through it, but we struggle with our really the internal stuff, our psychological struggle with assurance of faith. Am I saved? Maybe if you're a Calvinist, am I elect? But Lord, would you please do the miracle of bringing your spirit to bear upon our hearts so that we have full assurance of faith, so that we can, with confidence, say, Abba, Father. Thank you for the access. Thank you for the ministry of our great high priest. Help us, therefore, to take full advantage of the fact that a new and living way has been opened to us through the flesh of your son, Jesus, that was torn and broken for us. Bless you, God. Thank you, God. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.